the privilege that's been ours this evening to come together yet again on this second opportunity today is a great one indeed. The opportunity to assemble is such a rich privilege. It is good to see each and every person gathered here tonight, and haven't these songs in many ways had such inspiring messages? And haven't they been motivational to consider that which rests before us this week? I hope tonight's lesson in some way will also mesh right with that thought because we're going to discuss a transition from being terrified to being trusting. And you can already imagine, based on the text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago, as John read the 14th chapter of Matthew, you might want to be turning there. We'll in fact be giving some attention to a rather well-known incident in the life of Peter. But I submit to you that as we do that, the implications in it and the messages that might be extracted from it will be things that can be very helpful and very compelling even to us. This opening slide is one that discusses transformation. Isn't it true that transformation is a rather central part of the life in Christ? Romans 12.1 says that you and I are not to be conformed to this world, but that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So may I suggest that transformation is required. Let's tonight discuss what can be involved in a particular transformation. Have you known fear to the point of being terrified? As you have faced some matter or uncertainty or some decision in life, may I submit to you that Peter, in the situation before us, will help us learn a great deal about what's involved in this. Let's close that slide then like this. I entitled it, From Terrified to Trusting. You may notice the two usages of the word T. I hope that makes it a little bit more memorable as we appreciate that we see that very transition taking place before us tonight. Let's devote the first section of the lesson to a reflection on the setting of the text itself. As we have often noted, it is in fact not only a good idea, but quite frankly a necessary matter to always understand what the setting of a passage is so that we never take a passage out of the context in which it was originally given to us. Jesus as the text before us opens, had just performed an amazing miracle. Could I remind you the feeding of the 5,000? That is one of the most amazing, I suppose one of the most imagining matters that comes before us. I have asked you to notice a few details about it. There were 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children, and yet as they had been with the Lord for some time, it says that the evening, or at least the later hours of the day, were approaching. At this point, the Lord made an amazing decision. He decided to test the faith of His apostles. It, in fact, developed like this. Jesus, in fact, urged them. The people were without food, and there were such a large number of them. The Lord told His apostles, you provide for them. Can you imagine the situation you and I might be in? I've got to provide food for this many people. I don't have it. After all, there were no McDonald's in that day and time. But isn't it interesting? The following took place. After scouring the crowd, they discovered there was a little boy that had five loaves and two fish. Now clearly one might wonder, what is such a small amount among this large audience, among this large grouping? 
And yet, as you and I well remember, the Lord gave the orders. The five loaves and two fish were divided. Everybody that wanted something was not only able to eat, but were filled. And not only that, they took up baskets full of fragments. Leftovers, if you please. But with all that being completed, you'll notice that near the bottom of that slide, the Lord now moves to the next element in what would be the matters of this chapter. Could I invite you now to start reading, or at least listen, as I start in verse 22. And straightway Jesus constrained His disciples to get into a ship, and to go before Him unto the other side, while He sent the multitudes away. As we ponder a moment, remember the large multitude that had just eaten, the Lord was going to distribute or at least disperse them. But He sent His apostles ahead. You board a ship, and you cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. With that in mind, notice what interestingly transpires. And when He had sent the multitudes away, He went up into, the, into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, He was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake and spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And at that point, the reading that Brother John shared with us takes up and continues through verse 33. But would you notice near the bottom of the slide, our Lord sent the crowd away just as He intended, but after that, rather than going immediately to the apostles, it says He went to a mountain to pray. Now it would appear that He was there for quite some time, at least several hours. And in the course of that feature, or at least that matter, it now brings us to the bottom of that slide. Doesn't it teach us the Lord was a man of prayer? Here was the Son of God, the one who had access to the privileges and the power of God Himself, and yet the one who devoted time and devoted space to prayer. In Mark 1.35, Jesus got up early. He rose up early to pray. Doesn't that remind us of the urgency that He attached to the attitude and the reality of prayer? But with that completed, notice what the Lord next did. By this time, the text informs us that ship that had those apostles on it, it was now in the midst of the sea. It wasn't near the shore anymore. They had now advanced to a rather far place within that Sea of Galilee. It's a fair thing for us to remember. The topography surrounding the Sea of Galilee was such that the cliffs rose very steeply. That meant that weather patterns and air masses as it arrives at that place, they can rush downward and as such, it often leads to the rather rapid formation of clouds and the rather rapid formation of storms. And sometimes the storms can develop very quickly. That happened on this occasion. You may notice particularly verse number 24. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. 
there was both wind and waves. And as those things battered against the matter of the ship, can you imagine? They were not on a ship the size of a large ocean liner. It was not that large a vessel. It could easily feel the matters touching the movement of the water and easily feel the issues connected to the wind that could be fierce and severe. Would you and I be a bit concerned? I'm sure we would. Remember, these were experienced fishermen. Peter, you and I know, he spent his living as a fisherman. He knew that sea well. He knew the things that could transpire, and yet he was afraid. I suspect we each would have been as well. You'll notice furthermore then the following took place. It says, In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus proceeded to walk on the Sea of Galilee. To think about the power evident in one's person to be able to walk on the water, and our Master did it. And you'll notice, did it apparently with ease. The fourth watch of the night. The ancient Romans, as they in fact gave reality to the naming of hours and portions of the day, they divided the night into four portions, so each consisting of about three hours. The fourth watch of the night would have been between 3 a.m. roughly and 6 a.m. The Lord had been up apparently all night, either in prayer, sending the multitude away, or now walking on the Sea of Galilee. Not only that, consider for a moment those apostles aboard that ship. At that hour of the night, it was no doubt dark. And if the storm was there, no doubt you couldn't have seen the moon even if it had been a full moon. May I say again, it was dark. It was a very troubling night. And here they see someone walking on the water. The text says they were so afraid that they first appreciated perhaps a spirit. Other translations read that as a ghost. But as they witnessed that, you'll notice that that fear soon gave way to the following. Could I direct your attention again to verse 26? After seeing this spirit, they thought, walking on the water, they cried out for fear. They were so moved in the fear of the moment that they voiceably announced that fear, crying out. The next verse says, Straightway Jesus spake to them. And these were the words He said, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. That should, if you see, have rather readily and quickly calmed those fears because they had seen the Lord already work amazing miracles and He could safely thus deliver them from this moment. You'll notice though that Peter quickly says something. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Now, Peter makes a statement that likely would not have been the one I suspect any of us would have made. I suspect we would have said, Oh, thank you. We're glad you're here. Please come aboard and calm us during the course of this storm. But those were not the words out of Peter's mouth. He said, Lord, if it's you... Invite me to come walking on the water to you. Now, we don't know how far it was from the border of the vessel to where Jesus was. It was clearly close enough they could, in fact, see and hear Him in the midst of the wind and the other things taking place. 
But Peter made a statement. Jesus responded like this, Come. If it's you, Lord, bid me come to you. And Jesus said, Come. That verse then says, And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water. Peter took a step out of that boat. He, in fact, stepped out on nothing but water. There were no planks there for him to grip onto in terms of remaining afloat. He was convinced enough with faith and verity that the one whom he was now speaking to and who had invited him to come was the Lord. And Peter was going to walk on water just like him. That took a fair amount of confidence, a fair amount of faithfulness, and a fair amount of trust in the one now inviting you. Maybe it's fair to say, Peter stayed afloat. He walked on that water. And the next verse reads like this. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him, and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. One last little point before we extract some lessons from the scene itself. But isn't it an amazing thing to imagine? What if you and I had been one of the other apostles like James or John, and we heard Peter say, Bid me come to you on the water, and we watch Peter step out on the water. Would we have been inclined to follow? Or would we have remained in the supposed somewhat better safety of the ship? It is an interesting matter to consider, isn't it? At this point, let's then extract a few lessons. Peter went from terrified to trusting. And as he did that, what an example he is able to set before us as well. Lesson number one will start this way. Maybe it's an evident matter. Maybe it's not that great a revelation. But isn't it true that we see an immediate reality of what is recognized here as a storm, and yet in our life there can often be storms as well. I say that this way. A storm is a physical thing reminding us of severity. We know here what tornadoes have done and can do. And from the news, we know what hurricanes have done and can do. And we also know what thunderstorms have done and can do. There are times in your life and mine when there will be storms. It's a guaranteed thing. Times of not only unpleasantness, but things that can utterly challenge what you and I are and what we can be, and it may alter the course of our life. In other words, things may never be the same again. Do you recall that scene in the ancient time when that soldier or that leader, that general, if you please, Julius Caesar, crossed the Rubicon River, and when he marched upon Rome, he knew there was no going back. Sometimes even to this day we use that phrase, he or she has crossed the Rubicon. That means this decision cannot be undone. 
Sometimes in life, we are left in moments of uncertainty. What do I do? How do I approach this issue or problem? How do I do it in such a way I do not alienate those that might be, and I remain close to those whom I love so? At this point, in these storms of life, isn't it interesting to remember those people of the Bible? Some of those whom we live so high in faithfulness, they had their storms. I've asked you to remember just the three I would quickly mention. David knew his storms, didn't he? Oh, he had moments of faithfulness and victory and courage. We all remember how well he had tackled, or at least he battled Goliath, and he did so successfully. But maybe we should be as quick to remember the times he faltered and the times he failed and the times he made unwise decisions. He, you see, met his storms. Could we not also remember none other than Jeremiah? That bold prophet of the Lord, for some, perhaps the favorite of the prophets. They loved to study Jeremiah. And yet he found himself more than once in a dungeon because of his faithfulness. And he found himself more than once in scenes in which his own countrymen said, He's a traitor, and they wanted rid of him. Surely there was not a, lo a lot of love between his countrymen and him. I've asked you to recall one more. What about Daniel? To be taken away from his homeland as he was. I say all of that to say they knew their storms, and we're a bit naive if we think we won't know ours. These storms could take many different varieties and forms. At the bottom of the slide, I've just quickly listed a few. Maybe they will relate to issues about one's person. Maybe they'll be the loss of those near and dear. Maybe they will relate to other particular matters that impact us so largely. But the point through all of it is, there's a host of Bible verses that encourage us to not allow the storm to overwhelm us. A few verses I've asked you to notice are these, and we'll not read all of them, but they are enough to remind us of this. Romans 8.18 says, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Now the opening part of that verse says, the sufferings of this present time, don't think you'll be exempt from suffering. You may not know what form it'll take, and it may be sometime in the future yet, but it will come. In 1 John 3.13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. If the hatred of the world will be developed in that way, and the text promises it will, then we shouldn't be alarmed if the time comes and when it comes that there will be an active aggression on the part of others opposed to what we believe in and what we are committed to, to defending, the storms of life. But lesson number two, don't you find it intriguing to ponder the timing of the Lord in this case? Did you notice what happened? Jesus again sent the disciples onto the ship, and they headed out on that Sea of Galilee, and the Lord knew there was going to be a storm, and He knew what was going to befall them. But He didn't rush to their aid immediately. Do you remember the following scene? The text says, in Mark's version in particular, that Jesus walked on the water and He would have passed them by. That's what Mark says. He would have passed them by, but they saw Him 
and they begin to cry out in fear. Doesn't that indicate to us, Jesus waited a bit. He didn't rush to their side as soon as the storm began to develop. He didn't ensure He was aboard the ship before the storm, in fact, came their way. He allowed them for a period of time to battle, to ponder, to deal with, and to face the realities of the storm. There are times in our life, may I submit, that we might be tempted to cry out, God, why didn't you protect me from this? Why didn't you orchestrate things so that I did not have to face this? We trust that He could have, but He didn't. Why am I suddenly faced with this surgeries? Why am I suddenly faced with this tragedy that has befallen my family or other particulars of my life? There are those whose faith has been so shaken that they really have never recovered from such realities. I would submit to you that it could be that this little passage at least reminds us of this. God has never promised to keep us from the storms of life. What He's promised to do is see us through it. And so it is. They struggled. And remember, as experienced fishermen, some of them were, they struggled in that storm for some amount of time. We don't know how many hours it may have been, but it was not until sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. that the Lord came to them. It may well be in that light that this slide at least asks us to note the following. May we never doubt the wisdom of the Lord. Even when His timing is not that which we would have preferred, and even when His timing is not that which we would have chosen for ourselves, may we never question or doubt that He does all things well. Mark 7 verse 37. And that means when you and I face the challenges or difficulties or storms of life, there can be good that can come out of it. For look at some of the verses I've asked you to consider. Isn't it true that the Word of God says things like this, Romans 5, verses 3, 4, and 5. Tribulation brings experience. Experience brings hope. And all of that began with, in tribulation, be joyful. Now, I suspect that has to be one of the most overtly challenging texts in all the New Testament. How am I supposed to be hopeful, or rather joyful, in the midst of these tribulations? They're hurtful. They're discouraging. They cause me, in fact, my countenance to fall. And yet, God says, be joyful when you face temptations. Be joyful when you face tribulations. As if that text in Romans isn't enough, James echoes it in James 1, beginning in verse 2. To say all of that is to say, when we do encounter these things, we ought to be able to see the powerful providence of God able to bring about much from it. We noticed last Sunday in our lesson in the morning hour, at least, about Joseph. One who his brothers hated so, he ended up being sold, and who ultimately found himself doing well in Potiphar's house, but then Potiphar's wife lied about him, and he ended up in prison. You must have thought that Joseph would finally have said, God, I've had enough. Aren't you ever going to protect me? I'm trying to serve you. And yet through it all, Joseph was able to look back and say, The Lord brought me to this place in life. 
And He's allowed me to occupy this current station in powerful character to Pharaoh and ultimately be the one who delivers from this terrible famine. In that light, we'll close that slide by noting this. There were a few other times in the New Testament when the timing of the Lord would be something some would question. I would suggest to you to ponder the raising of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus was such that he died. And Martha and Mary were obviously very saddened. And yet it was a couple of days before the Lord came. He didn't come immediately. He waited. And He asserted all along, this will be to the glory of God. I hope you and I can sometimes see that when the storms of life do come our way, and the issues of the Lord's timing maybe are unusual from our perspective, we'll never doubt the Lord. He does all things well. Lesson number three. We notice that this text highlights not only fear, but terror. Those apostles, it seems, on that ship, when they saw that spirit, they were so beside themselves that they even suggested the irrational. It's a ghost. Do you believe in ghosts? I think not. And yet you appreciate that they were so overwhelmed by the fear they thought they were going to die, it would seem. This storm is great. We're perhaps still a long way from shore because the text says they were still in the midst of the sea. And these experienced fishermen were so beside themselves that they were gripped by terror. That kind of terror is certainly one that reminds us that there is a difference between fearfulness and something like terror. Isn't it true the Bible encourages us to be people who recognize the place of fear? Aren't we taught, fear God and keep His commandments? This is the whole duty of man, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. And more than once in the New Testament, Jesus encouraged people to have a proper fear of God and a fear of the civil authorities because they can carry out the sword, Romans 13, verses 1 to 5. So fear has its place. And fear can thus be that which encourages safety and healthfulness. Isn't it true that we teach a baby, don't put your hand on the fire. It's hot. It'll hurt you. You see, if we instill in them that kind of fear, it's for their betterment. It's for their safety. The Bible encourages us. Recognize the proper place of fear. You and I as Christians don't need to be a kind of person that would give in to irrational matters. How many times throughout the millennia of the human family have people given themselves to pursue what the Bible says is not appropriate? Trying to talk to the dead. They did it in the Old Testament. They tried to speak and get information from those that were dead. Didn't Saul consult the witch at Endor in 1 Samuel 28? Isn't it true that there were others in Isaiah 8 who attempted to do that kind of thing? The Bible tells us that those kind of matters, even continuing to this day, those that would consult tarot cards and Ouija boards, the like that plays with that which man cannot access, all of that reminds us that people often in their own considerations have moved in directions that are not wise, that are not healthy, that are not consistent with the revelation of the Word of God.
Isn't it so? Then at the bottom of that slide, you and I can be motivated by texts like this one to have a proper consideration and fear, but not to allow it to go to the point that we behave irrationally and inconsistent with what would be the will of God. The fourth lesson, let's cast a spotlight on Peter. Aboard the ship, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you. Invite me to come to you on the water. Now, we often know that Peter was quick to talk and he was quick to speak. But you'll notice in this case, as we've already noted, he said something that might be very different than what we would have said. We might have reached out our hand at once as quickly as we could to help Jesus get on board the ship. But Peter wanted to go to him. If it's you, bid me come to you. And at that point, as we've already noted earlier tonight, and as you can see again on the slide, Peter stepped out of that boat onto water. He stepped out on water. Now you and I know that the typical lot due to the force due to gravity would be for a human being to plunge through the surface of that water. And since they were in the midst of the sea, that sea was fairly deep at this point. Due to the silt and sediment that's no doubt accumulated over the years, I don't know how deep it was then compared to what it is now. But suffice it to say, it was deep. And yet Peter was willing to step out on the water. What a challenge there is in that for us. May I suggest to you that statement on the part of Peter by its very nature required great faith. By the fact that Peter asked it the way he did, it would seem he was very willing to step out of the boat. Would you and I have done it? If we believe in the Lord, would we still have done it? Or would we have had enough doubt that we would have been unwilling? That's a good question, isn't it? Sometimes we know that Peter, of course, is one who did put his foot in his mouth. And he did say some things that were very quick and that ultimately he had to be rebuked for it. Peter pulled out that sword trying to save Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus said, Peter, put the sword up. That's not why I'm here. And there were other occasions when, again, he was so quick to answer, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, verse 18. This time he was ready to step out on the water. That kind of faith is an encouragement to us that we might mature and grow, that our faith might be strong, that our faith might be great, that our faith might be a mature faith. The Bible talks about some who were of little faith. And in fact, did you notice in this instance, that very wording is used. Verse number 31, O thou of little faith. But Peter had had enough faith to step out on the water, and yet in the aftermath of what happened, Jesus said, You have little faith. In Matthew 13, we are told that if you had the faith, even like that of a mustard seed, that you would be able to appreciate the movement of a mountain and cast it into the sea. I fear sometimes that it's easy for us to overestimate the strength of our faith. Maybe we think, I can walk as close to the devil as I want to, and yet my faith is strong enough that I will not give in to what he's asking me to do. 
I can go to this place. I can hang out with these people. And before you know it, and it won't take long, but before you know it, I find myself talking like they talk and going where they go and doing what they do. The devil won because I overestimated my strength, the faith that was mine. Peter obviously had some pretty strong faith to step out on the water, and yet, in a matter of minutes, he too was starting to sink. May we not overestimate our faith. We should desire, of course, for that faith to mature and to grow. And the Bible gives us, of course, what's needed to make that happen. Could I invite you to note a few other people in the Bible who acted with such courageousness and acted with such great faith? and consideration. I've asked you to reconsider Jehoshaphat, that rather compelling scene in first in Second Kings eleven, where here was someone who, despite the commandment of the king and despite what had been done by all those before, made a determination, this is right, and this is what I'm going to do. And she did it. That was a woman who acted with such consideration, and God used her mightily to the preservation of His people. The little boy Joash was preserved by what she did, and he would become king. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, what God did through her. May I suggest you and I today, we can be those that God will use to great work in His kingdom, to stand up for the Lord when maybe so many others... Have not, but yet we can be the one who will set an example that will cause them to think and cause them to change and cause them to say, well, I should have, but I'm thankful you did. And I'd like to be with you. I want to encourage you and thank you for being a good example. May you and I have that kind of appreciation. Peter stepped out on the water. The courage of his activity leads me to list a few examples. Gentlemen, if our elders ask you as a Christian to lead a public prayer or to perhaps lead singing or to wait on the table, some other act of public service, maybe bring a devotion at some point, you might be afraid or scared or you might think, oh, I've never done that before. Trust enough in the Lord that He will provide you the necessary strength and you'll be able to do that which is needed. Ladies, there are things, of course, that may be a part of your life in service. Now, it's not the public service that would, like I've just mentioned, but they're all things that you and I can do in life. As men and women of service in the kingdom, have conviction and confidence and courage. As you step out like Peter did, God will allow you the mechanisms and the mentality and the consideration to make it so. Maybe in finality, why don't we come to the final lesson of this, of this particular lesson tonight. When did Peter start to sink? Could I direct your attention one more time to the way that the wording of the verse presents it? In verse number 30 it says, But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. You and I are led to appreciate the fact that he stepped out of the boat and for some distance he walked on the water. We don't know how far it was, but any distance would be amazing, wouldn't it? 
But the time came, he began to notice the wind about him. And he began to notice the waves and the conditions that earlier had gripped him and the others while he was aboard the ship. Those kind of thoughts apparently began to re-enter his mind. He saw that wind. The text says it was boisterous. I've asked you to notice that that word means strong. It has the idea of mighty and powerful. I don't know how many miles per hour that wind was. But can you imagine the Lord walking on this water? And if you ever tried to walk against the wind, and I know we all have, it blows you about. It's difficult to remain steady. We have every impression the Lord was like an anchor standing on this water. And as Peter walked, the wind didn't bother him at first either. But when he began to notice it and to focus upon it and allow it to be the directing matter in his mind, then the text says, and beginning to sink, he began to sink. Might you be impressed with me? He didn't plunge through the surface of the water all at once. He slowly began to sink. Now that again was an overthrow of what gravity would demand. But isn't it amazing to consider as he began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Now while he had been fixated on the Master, all had been well in the midst of the tragedies that otherwise were gripping him and the others, the storm, the wind. But when he took his eyes off the Master, when he began to look at the wind, when he allowed it to be the determining factor, he began to sink. Surely that teaches us that like the lesson would indicate, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. In this world, if we start focusing on something else, however otherwise noble that might be, it is not going to be sufficient to sustain. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Maybe in fascination, you'll notice how gradually things can happen. May I suggest that turning away from Jesus isn't something that typically happens all at once. As a Christian, I begin to have my attention taken every now and then to a certain other place. And so I miss an occasional service. I don't give attention to the things that would be noteworthy any longer. I spend my time pondering and thinking about these otherwise matters. And at first, maybe, there does not appear to be any real problem in them. But gradually, ever so slowly, maybe even imperceptibly so, this grows in time till it becomes something much greater. And I've started to sink. May I suggest at the bottom of that slide, might we be mindful, watchful, vigilant, and alert. Don't allow Satan to creep in slowly. As we've often noted, he is a master at being subtle and clever and gaining the place that he knows he one time can have. At the bottom of that slide, several verses would then remind us, verses like James 4, verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world 
is enmity with God. And yet, one of the greatest temptations, the devil wants us to be friends with the world, to approve what it approves, to endorse what it endorses, to enjoy the advantages that it offers. But all the while, James said, you're the enemy of God if you do that. May we believe it and realize that those kind of dangers are real. Do you suppose that Peter at first felt any danger? I'm walking on the water. I have every expectation. He was excited. He was thrilled. Because how many human beings have ever been able to do it? Well, you and I know, apart from the Lord, nobody. And yet, we appreciate that when he began to look away, do you suppose he began concerned when his ankles got below the water and then his knees and maybe even a little bit higher? Lord, save me. As we come near this last slide in the lesson tonight, it has been our consideration, at least in this fifth lesson, to be admonished this way in texts such as 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight: Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. There's no vacation for a Christian. Our service to the Lord is always, every day of the week, every hour of the day. And so it is tonight as we close this lesson. Let's summarize the five points with the following slide of conclusion. We have highlighted a transition from terrified to trusting. As Peter made that transformation aboard the ship, terrified. But when the master was near and his faith was so strong, we noticed how trusting he was. And then when his attention turned away, he began to sink. When you and I are near the master, all will be well. Is your life and mine such that we're near the Master? Are you and I living faithfully until death? Revelation 2 verse 10. Are we developing that life of steadfast immovability? If that's not the description for you and me tonight, do something about it. The Lord leads you to make the decision. He encourages and invites, but He does allow you to decide. If you'd like to come back to your first love tonight... We'd be delighted to encourage you and assist you and pray for you. If you've been guilty of things known publicly, don't you want others to know you've made a change so that they can encourage you and pray with you and for you? And I know this assembly of people would be delighted to do that tonight. If we can help you in your transition from terrified to trusting, why don't we allow this lesson to be a motivation? And why don't you come while together we stand and sing?